Thank you, Dave. Hasn't the music been marvelous today? Isn't the music marvelous every Sunday? <laughs> I think we're spoiled. I do. I do. There's a long history of preachers, uh, prophets, we might say, in the Scriptures, uh, listening to the music and then standing up to speak. Uh, that tradition is carried on into our day, uh, some would say even into Tallowood. There are rumors that one of our interim pastors would uh, wait until he heard the anthem, and when he heard the words of the anthem, then he would know what he was going to say that day. I don't know if that's true or not, but I know that from time to time people will say to me, oh, pastor, it's the music. It's the music that God uses to speak to my soul. And inevitably I say, me too. God works through beautiful music and words and and like the prophets of old, we need to hear God speak to us through beautiful music, and then we need to speak up for Him and, and say what God is saying for us to say. And somebody has called the church a non-profit organization and spelled that P-R-O-P-H-E-T, that there are no prophets left in the church some years ago after 9-11, Oz Guinness, who is a fascinating thinker and writer, wrote a book called Prophetic Untimeliness, and he said when uh, preachers say what God really wants them to say, they can be sure it was what God really wanted them to say when not everybody agrees, when somebody takes exception with what they say. So how do we know if what the prophet or the preacher says is true? Well, the Scriptures make it clear that, that his words will come true if they are from God. Uh, furthermore, the, the prophet lives what he preaches. He obeys God at all costs. And most of all, he is not for sale at any price. In our study of the books of the Old Testament, we've been taking them one at a time. We've seen this emergence of institutions. I don't know if we realized as we were watching that that's what was happening, but the, the emergence of the, the priesthood we saw in Exodus and Leviticus where Moses and Aaron and their descendants became priests who brought the sacrifices of the people of God in worship to God, following God's order and rules. And then, you remember after that, the institution of the judges emerges. After Joshua fades from the scene, this great general, then, then come these judges who stand and who are not actually perfect people. Some have said God gives us the book of Judges to show us that He can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick because there are some people in that group that you would say, well, it's hard to believe God would use them. And, and one writer said, God, God was saying, if you can't give me anybody else, I'll, I have to work, so I'll work through these people. There is the emergence of the institution of king. King, we remember that in uh, the books of Samuel where they came to Samuel and said, just, just give us a king. Now the priesthood has fallen on hard times. The judges have faded from the scene. Samuel remains as a sort of priest, as a, a sort of prophet, as a sort of judge, but they say, we don't like those institutions. We'd really like to have a king. And they call for a king until God gives them what they want. Sometimes God gives us what we want, whether we need it or not. And so they receive the institution of king, and Saul uh, comes before them, and God says, don't take, it, don't take it hard, Samuel. They've not rejected you. They've rejected me. 
because I've always been Israel's king. And the institution of king emerges and it doesn't start so well. It sort of sputters, doesn't it? It's, it was stammers and starts that, that Saul starts that institution. He's not a very good representative, but, but God singles out David and says, I will use David. And David's not a perfect person either, but God has a plan for his life and God works through David. And we come now in 1 Kings to um, the building or establishment of another institution we might call it the office of prophet. We've seen Moses and we've seen Samuel, but in 1 Kings, we begin to see these prophets, these spokespersons for God, emerge as a tour de force in the life of Israel. So would you open your Bibles with me tonight to 1 Kings chapter 1. I'm going to read just uh, three or four passages to you tonight and think with you about princes and problems and prophets. 1 Kings chapter 1, uh, verses 11 to 14. What do you do with an old king? <laughs> I love the way Eugene Peterson starts 1 Kings. He says, David was old. It happens to the best of us. David grew old. We all do. But politically, this presented problems for Israel. Let's stand together as we read. David has this son, Adonijah, who decides, like his brother Absalom before him, to take matters into his own hands. If dad can't rule, then maybe I should be the ruler. And he makes a good run at it. And he actually has a lot of support. He's got uh, David's general, Joab, who's a powerful general uh, on his side. He's got Zadok, the priest. He's got those two offices locked up, the general and the priest. They're with him. What he doesn't have is the prophet. Let me just read to you from 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 11. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king without our Lord David's knowing about it? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in to King David and say to him, My Lord the king, did you not swear to me, your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? And while you're still there talking to the king, I will come in and confirm what you have said. Thank you. You may be seated. Israel had uh, prophets before they had kings. Moses and Samuel are examples of that, but but I suspect with the establishment of the office of king, they had in their minds that, that maybe the prophet would pl play a diminished role in the life of Israel. And at one level, because David had such a close connection with God, because he was such a worshiper who loved music and who stood in the presence of the Lord and who loved to sing to the Lord, at one level, he sort of had relationship with God all by himself. But there are strategic moments in his life, we learned in the book of 2 Samuel, when God would bring a spokesman to sort of straighten David out. That in some ways, the prophet had greater authority than the king because he spoke for God as he listened to God. So it was Nathan who came to David when he made his grievous mistake with Bathsheba and said, thus says the Lord. 
And he brought David back into line and took him to task for his sin. Later, remember when David counted his fighting men. It's in that chapter 24. We looked at it the last time we were together in 2 Samuel 24. It was Gad who came to David and said, okay, God gives you a choice. This is the way it's going to be. Now, David has grown old. He can no longer rule. Everybody knows things are coming to a conclusion. And It makes sense for the crown prince, Adonijah, who really is the next claimant to the throne. He's the eldest son of David who is left. It's actually sort of his birthright to become the next king, as those things typically went in ancient Israel. But David had already made a pact with his wife Bathsheba, and not only with Bathsheba, but with Nathan the prophet, that his son Solomon would ascend his throne, that Solomon would be the one who would build the temple, that Solomon would be the next great king. And and David is so weak and tired that there's some thought, maybe he won't stand up to Adonijah. Maybe he withstood the onslaught of Absalom, but Adonijah will, will finally put his father to rest. And Adonijah set it up well. He did all the things you're supposed to do to become a king. He got his, he got his spiritual advisor, the priest lined up, Zadok, who was David's priest. He got David's general, who was stronger than Joab. He he got everything lined up. He, he got them to play the trumpets at the right time. He got them to anoint him with the right kind of oil. He went to the right place to do it. But he didn't have the prophet, Nathan, whose name means gift and who had been such a gift of accountability and friendship to David. Nathan saw what was coming, took Bathsheba into his council. They too went to David. And before the evening, David had established Solomon on the throne. He set it in motion. He set it the way he wanted it. And then he gave Solomon strict instructions about the things he was supposed to do. And Solomon, Solomon started so well as a king. And in fact, God visited him and spoke to him twice on two different occasions. In chapter 3 and chapter 9, God speaks directly to Solomon and tells him, this is what I want you to do and this is the plan I have for your life. But there comes a point when Solomon turns his heart away from God as he is seduced by the religions of his wives and he goes down a dark and treacherous path. And at the end of his ministry, God raises up a a prophet who, who simply goes to Jeroboam who has who has once rebelled against Solomon before and said, here is what's going to happen. He takes off his cloak and he tears it in 12 pieces. And he says, take 10 of the pieces. Because God is going to give you 10 of the tribes of Israel, the northern tribes of Israel. And David will be left with Judah. He'll, his descendants will continue to rule over Judah, the tribe of Judah, perhaps a Benjamin for a season, but the rest will all go north with you. They will all follow after you. And so a prophet is the one who announces the end of, of Solomon's rule. Solomon has a son named Rehoboam who's, who's not particularly wise, who, um, who, who uh, has the chance to follow in his father's footsteps, but instead of taking the wise counsel of the elders, he follows after the counsel of his young friends who tell him what to do. Jeroboam is in the crowd that says, your dad was awfully tough on us. Are you going to be easier on us? And after three days, Rehoboam says, no, I'm going to be harder on you than my father was. And Jeroboam takes those tribes north and the kingdom divides. And they are kings of Israel to the north and they are not especially good people. It's not long before Jeroboam builds a couple of golden calves because he knows if the people have to go back to Jerusalem to worship, he's going to lose his rule over them after a generation. But if he can give them a place to worship, so he sets up idols 
in northern Israel. And the very same prophet who tore the robe and said, you're going to rule over ten, sends him word that his kingdom will come to an end, that his own son, who's very sick, will die. There's another man of God who's called in chapter 13, a man of God who, who decries and speaks out against that worship there uh, at Bethel and at Dan, those two golden calves, and says, this is not right. And it's an odd story. I welcome you to read it, but it's an interesting way that God works. And there is the emergence of new kings in Judah, these descendants of David, and there's an emergence of new kings in Israel in the north, and there's a lot of treachery, and new dynasties arise, and, and Omri arises after Zimri, and Omri's son Ahab arises, and we discover that these prophets have a sort of dance that they do with the kings. And the truth is, as you look at it, it's, it's ultimately the prophets who speak for God and who are used most powerfully by God. And I say that to you so that I may ask this important question. Who speaks for God? Who speaks for God in our world today? Who speaks for God in our country? Who speaks for God in our city? Who speaks for God in your life? Who is that person who when they speak to you, you hear unmistakably God speaking through that person? Because my word to you tonight is, if you can find somebody in this world who actually hears what God is saying to them and who speaks that truth into your life, by all means, knit your soul to that person. Put your life in conjunction with that person, that person who will obey God at all costs, that person who is determined to do what God says, even if it costs him or her greatly. Commit your life in, in walking with that person. And at the same time, I would urge you to listen for God's voice because it may very well be that He wants you to be that person. And in this day of political machinations where there are all kinds of uh, politicians rising and falling here and there and all kinds of things happening, there's a temptation for us to believe that the real power resides in government. And therefore, we need to sort of uh, put all of our eggs in that basket and trust in the government. But I've lived long enough to know that government leaders of all stripes can sort of let you down and fail you. But our God, who is still the King of His people, invites us to follow Him and from time to time will speak into our lives through one of these prophets that He raises up to speak for Him. And tonight, I, I just want to look at the lives of a, a couple of them. You'll recognize them when I show them to you. But they both relate to this, this King Ahab, who is a, a train wreck of a king. He's a king of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. And he's just uh, fraught with problems and the description of his life is found in 1 Kings chapter 16 of verse 30 where it says Ahab son of Omri did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam son of Nabat this one who had led them into idolatry but he also married Jezebel daughter of Ethbaal king of the Sidonians and began to serve Baal and worship him. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Now, Samaria is the northern capital, the, the capital of Israel. And he's built a temple to Baal there. And Ahab also made an, a share of pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. 
And it's at this time in chapter 17, verses 1 to 5, that we see the emergence of a new prophet. We've heard from, from Nathan and from Ahijah. Uh, we've heard from the, the, the man of God he's called in chapter 13. But in chapter 17 we read, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in, Ga- in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did, underline this, so he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And God begins to work in the life of Elijah, and he speaks up for God. And he doesn't tell Ahab what Ahab wants to hear, but he tells Ahab what Ahab needs to hear. So after there's a period of drought, and God has sustained him in that drought through the widow at Zarephath, he shows up, Elijah shows up, and and speaks to Obadiah, and talks with him, and says, uh, I'd like to talk to the king. And Obadiah says, hey, look, I'm a, I'm a believer in God, too. I'm a follower of Yahweh, and I, I'm, I'm not going to do it because you're going to get me killed. Because as soon as I tell the king that you're here, you're just going to be whisked off somewhere by the Spirit, and I'm going to be standing here alone, and the king's going to take it out on me, so I'm not going to play this game. And Elijah says, no, no, uh, here's the deal. You tell the king to meet me on top of Mount Carmel, and we're going to decide once and for all who's God. It's either going to be Baal, this fertility God that Ahab has bowed down to, or it's going to be Yahweh, the God who had revealed himself to Moses and who had worked in the life of Samuel, who had worked in the life of David. But we're going to decide once and for all who's, who's going to be God. And they have a sort of God showdown. And you know the story in chapter 18. And Elijah gives them home court advantage there on Mount Carmel. At least they think they have home court advantage. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But they, they get to go first and they, they get all the choice of the bulls and they get to set up their altar first. And sure enough, their God is a no-show. Be careful that the God that you follow is a God who will show up when you need him. Elijah taunts them a little bit, shout louder. He says, surely he's a God. Maybe he's deep in thought. And Elijah said to all the people, finally, come here to me. This is in chapter 18, verse 30. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed, and he arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood, and then he said to them, fill four large jars of water and pour it on the offering on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered it, and they did it the third time, and the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. And at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice and the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. We need to know that we need to speak for God because somebody ought to speak for God. I found this quote from Forbes magazine about 50 years ago. This is what it said. So long as the church pretends or assumes to preach absolute values, 
but actually preaches relative and secondary values, it will, it will merely hasten the process of our disintegration. We're asked to turn to the church for our enlightenment, but when we do so, we find that the voice of the church is not inspired. The voice of the church today, we find, is the echo of our own voices. When we consult the church, we hear only what we ourselves have said. There's only one way out of this spiral, and the way out is the sound of a voice. Not our voice, but a voice coming from something beyond ourselves. This is Forbes magazine saying, we need a voice that comes from something beyond ourselves in the existence of which we cannot disbelieve. It is the duty of the pastors to hear this voice and to cause us to hear it and to tell us what it says. Well, Elijah did that. He told them there's only one God, and they didn't believe him. When they had the God show down, he proved to them that there was only one God. And then the people said, we will follow the Lord. But after that, he encountered some trouble. Remember, it hasn't rained, and so he says it's going to rain, and he prays, and he prays so fervently, and a cloud the size of a man's fist rises on the horizon, and, and he says, we better run, because that rain is coming. And sure enough, it does. And he, in the power of the Spirit, out, outruns uh, Ahab's chariot down the mountain, and when they get down the mountain, Jezebel finds out what he has done and says, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah's response is curious to me. You would think after winning such great victories for God that he would have thought himself in the Spirit to be invincible. You know, with God's help, I can do anything. God has just, just helped me. Surely he had the anticipation of what Paul would write to the Philippians about God uh, being able to do anything in his life, that he could do all things through God who strengthened him. But he, he doesn't have at this moment the, the wherewithal. Somebody has said fatigue makes cowards of us all. Fatigue has a way of sort of wearing down not just our bodies, but our spirits. And Elijah, is a, he's afraid, and he, he runs for his life. And he comes to Beersheba. This is in chapter 19. Beersheba is about as far as he can go in Judah, about as far as he can go south. He leaves his servant there. And then he goes another day's journey into the desert, and he came to a broom tree, and he sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. But even there, God does not abandon his servant, and, and an angel wakes him up and feeds him. God fed him a lot uh, through the years, and the angel Lord came back a second time and told him, get up, you need the strength to, to make your journey. And he got up and ate and drank, and then he traveled 40 days and 40 nights. And he came to that same mountain where Moses had seen the burning bush. He came to the mountain of God. And it reminds me that when we're exhausted and we're tired and we're ready to give up, God is always a good place to go. And he goes to God and he goes into the cave and he spends the night there and then God speaks to him. I love what the NRSV says at this point. God spoke to him, we hear in a still small voice, in a gentle whisper, some translations say. The NRSV says God spoke to him in the sheer silence. God spoke. When he got quiet enough, then he was able to hear God's voice because I think the whole journey 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, he kept hearing the echo of Jezebel's voice. And somehow that wrong voice sounded out and somehow drowned out the voice of God for him. And be careful the voices that you listen to in this world. Because there are many that will tell you uh, to give up. But there is a voice of God that says, I still have work for you to do. God says, you can't quit. And by the way, God never did answer his prayer to die. And Elijah said, I just want to just take my life. God never answered that prayer in the affirmative. In fact, God never did take his life. He just 
translated Elijah and took him, we'll see in 2 Kings, to live with him. But God's voice came not in the great and powerful wind and not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but in that sheer silence, in that still small voice, in that gentle whisper, God says to him, what are you doing here? I've been very zealous, he said. Now they're trying to kill me. I'm the only one left. And God says, yeah, well, I do have 7,000 others. He interrupts the pity party and says, I've got work for you to do. You've got kings to anoint in Syria and Israel, and you have a prophet to anoint. I can't let you quit until I've got somebody to take your place. When I was in seminary, I read the story for the first time of Jeff Ray. Jeff Ray was a professor, dearly beloved there at Fort Worth, and uh, sometime along the way in his pilgrimage, his son was found dead by the railroad tracks in Fort Worth. His son had been a promising young teacher with a bright future, and when he died unexpectedly, Jeff almost gave in. Uh, For a period of, of weeks, he stayed in his house, in his robe, never leaving the house. Friends brought him food, tried to encourage him to no avail. And then one day, he was looking through a scrapbook, and he came upon this anonymous poem, and he found these words. I want to let go, but I won't let go. There are battles to fight by day and by night for God and the right, and I'll never let go. I want to let go, but I won't let go. I'm sick, tis true, worried and blue and worn through and through, but I won't let go. I want to let go, but I won't let go. I will never yield. What, lie down on the field and surrender my shield? No, I'll never let go. I want to let go, but I won't let go. May this be my song. Mid legions of wrong, O God, keep me strong, that I may never let go. And in the strength of the Spirit, Elijah is recommissioned. He receives a recall, so to speak, and he anoints Elisha as his successor, and he goes forward. And Ahab continues uh, with battles against Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad attacks Samaria, and Ahab fights against him. And there's a prophet, again, a man of God who comes and tells him, you're going to win over Ben-Hadad, and he does. But but instead of uh, doing what the prophet tells him to do, Ahab just seems right like he can't do right. He, he won't do the right thing. And so another prophet comes and condemns Ahab, another nameless man of God. And uh, Ahab steals Naboth's vineyard. And then the second prophet I want to tell you about tonight, Micaiah, arises. It's interesting because um, Ahab, the king of Israel, appeals to Jehoshaphat, who's actually a godly king of Judah, and says, I need you to join me because I want to go fight against Ramoth Gilead. And you remember the story, he pulls uh, Jehoshaphat in and says, let's go up, we can, de- we can defeat these guys, we can win this battle, and, and Jehoshaphat has the audacity to ask, well, have we heard from the Lord on this? And so, uh, as is his custom, Ahab parades out all of his prophets and they all say, go up, you're going to win. One named Zedekiah says, you can't lose, just go fight, win, you can do this king, we believe in you. It's a, it's a great pep rally. And after he finishes speaking, Joshua says, yeah, do we have any of the Lord's prophets here? I'm not interested in hearing from these guys. Is there anybody who speaks for the Lord? And, and Ahab is, if, is nothing if he's not honest. He says, yeah, I would bring in this guy named Micaiah ben Imla, Micaiah the son of Imla, but he never says good things about me. And uh, Jehoshaphat says, before we get the chariots and horses out and start fighting, let's hear from him. And so 
And so uh, Ahab sends for Micaiah ben Imla, and Micaiah ben Imla is, is there. He's actually in, in jail, but they pull him out of jail and say, uh, hey, look, the king really needs you to weigh in on his team here. He really needs you to say the, the popular thing. All the other prophets agree that they're supposed to go up into battle, so don't, don't rain on this parade. Just say what needs to be said. And so Micaiah, who has, a, I think, a sense of humor, walks out and... and uh, and Ahab says, shall we go up and fight or not? And Micaiah, just in a sort of mocking, I think, temperament, says, yeah, go up, win. You can't lose. And Ahab says, how many times have I told you not to lie to me? Tell me the truth. And it's as if Micaiah says, yeah, well, you can't handle the truth because the truth is you go up in this battle and what I see is a vision and you're going to die. Well, Zedekiah, his great prophet comes over and smacks Micaiah and says, don't talk that way to the king. Who, when did the spirit leave me and go to you? And Micaiah says, yeah, well, at the end of the day, after they go up in this battle, come talk to me after the king dies because the king is going to die. Nevertheless, Ahab, undeterred by what God wants in his life, says, I'm going this way. Uh, come rain or shine, I'm going this way. And they go up in the battle, but he thinks he'll outsmart God. So he switches uniforms with Jehoshaphat so they'll think he's the king of Judah because not as many people want to kill the king of Judah as want to kill the king of Israel. But an errant arrow intended for uh, the king of Judah finds him and he dies just like Micaiah said he would. I tell you about prophets. They're not always popular. They don't always say what other people want them to say. You probably have seen on the internet, it's made its rounds, but Joe Wright, back in uh, January of 1996, was asked to pray a simple prayer in Kansas in their state senate. This is what he prayed. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask for your forgiveness and seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that's exactly what we've done. We've lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it moral pluralism. We've worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. By this time, senators are starting to walk out of the building. We've endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We've rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We've killed our unborn and called it choice. We've shot abortionists and called it justifiable. He was an equal opportunity offender, wasn't he? Uh, we've neglected to discipline our children and called it building esteem. We've abused power and called it political savvy. We've coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We've polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We've ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Try us and see if there is any wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Now that makes the rounds on the internet periodically uh, because we want to hear somebody speak the truth like that. But the people in that room that day did not like what he said. He pretty much offended everybody. And that's one way you can tell a prophet. You know, I mean, sometimes you, you get ministers who, you know, who wake up in the morning and say, how can I make the people happy? But I notice about John the Baptist and Elijah and Micaiah, for instance, that if they hadn't made somebody mad by 9 o'clock in the morning, they were having a bad day. These guys were intense, and they spoke what God told them to speak, even if it wasn't popular. And I love, I love the way that Micaiah spoke up for God, even though it risked his own life. And my word to you this evening is, find the person who listens to God and knit your soul to that person 
And perhaps somebody in this room tonight hears God's voice saying, I want you to speak for me. And I remember when I was a a young teen and I heard God say that to me in unequivocal terms. I want you to speak for me and say what I want you to say. And if God is saying to you that you need to speak for Him, I want to invite you tonight to make that commitment. You know, Walt Whitman wrote a poem, if I could co-opt it as Walter Brueggemann has, after all the seas are crossed, as they seem already crossed, and after the great captains and engineers have accomplished their word and their work, and after the noble inventors and the scientists, the chemists, the geologists, no offense, the ethnologists, finally shall come the prophets worthy of that name. The true sons of God shall come singing their song. Precisely. It's not that the works of the captains and the engineers and the scientists and the accountants, and by all means the geologists and politicians is unimportant, because it's not. But it's the prophets, the children of God, who sing their songs, who speak God's Word, who enable and ennoble the transformation of all other life and work, who see and speak truth amidst the falsity and fabrications of life, who call us into God's will, as Joseph Sittler said in his book, Gravity and Grace, that's what the sermon in worship is for. To hang the holy possible in front of the mind of the listeners and to lead them to that wonderful moment when they say, if it were true, I would do it. It's between you and God to decide whether what you've heard tonight is true. But if it is true, then by all means... Do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for a word in Your Word and confess, Lord, that we need to hear from You. We need a word from You. If we don't hear from You, what will we do? Needing You more each day, show us Your perfect way. There is no other way that we can live. In Jesus' name we pray.